right, I think this uh, leads us to our first speaker. Um, some of you attended the, the workshop on HIV and aging yesterday or HIV and older individuals. And actually this whole morning is an interesting group of themes surrounding this issue, uh, including the current speaker. Uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about neurocognitive disorders. And then we'll also talk about important comorbidities, including cardiovascular disease and renal disease. But I'd like to introduce our first speaker, uh, Sarah Gianella Weibel, and she is uh, Assistant Professor of Medicine from the University of California, San Diego. This is gonna be a little bit of a deeper dive into the science of inflammation and its role in HIV patho pathogenesis and aging. Welcome. Thank you, good morning, I'm Sarah. My pronouns are she and her. And uh, today we will talk about inflammation and HIV. I'm very honored to be here. So I do not have any conflict of interest. And here are my learning objectives. Today we will talk about the changing phase of the HIV epidemic. We will describe and understand the complexity of treating older adults with HIV. We will list some factors that contribute to unsuccessful aging, and then we will list some driver associated with inflammation, and at the end, we will summarize uh, how to best care for aging people with HIV. So I wanted to start with this picture. This picture uh, displays uh, an HIV activist. His name was David Kirby. It's an old picture from the 90s, and uh, uh, when people were uh, dying of HIV, and HIV was highly stigmatized, uh, and this picture was an attempt to humanize HIV at the time when it was stigmatized, uh, and also to show that not only people affected with HIV were suffering, but also the entire family. I remember I was a kid when uh, uh, Toscani used this picture as an advertisement for Benetton, and. Uh, um, and I remember we were all shocked, uh, but I appreciated the effort to try to give a face to the epidemics. But since the 90s, uh, we have come a very long way, and we talked extensively about the success of antiretroviral therapy during uh, the last 20 years uh, or 30 years, and how the development of great drugs has been one of the greatest achievements in modern medicine. And this has really changed the face of our epidemics. So in, uh, in a person who was diagnosed with HIV and not taking any drugs, uh, the expected life expectancy was 32 years. Well, right now, it is approaching the life expectancy of the, population, also of the general population. This means a person that is diagnosed with 20 and is taking antiretroviral medicine has an expectancy of life of 71 years, which is only, only eight years short from the general population. These are recent data for the CDC. In addition to having a longer expectancies, we are now also uh, realized that uh, U equal U, we talked a lot about it, that was a great success uh, for the community to realize that when someone is undetectable, this means it's untransmittable, and this means for the first time, now we have been seeing a decline in, uh, in infections because more people are treated, and the virus is, uh, uh, so, we'd, so it's, it, it still gets transmitted quite a bit, but there is a decline in transmission in most population. Not in everyone, there are still some uh, population where we don't see a decline, but in general, um, 
we see, we see a decline in transmission and putting together both like the longer life expectancy and the effort to limit transmission, this means that our population with HIV is getting older. And these are some data. Right now in the USA, already almost half of our people living with HIV are 50 years of older. And this uh, is projected to become more and more uh, over the next years. Uh, and uh, by 2030, almost 70% of people with HIV will be 50 or older. So now we, so, so we now we understand how the epidemics has changed in the last 30 years. So the the people that we so that we are treating just look very different. For example, to get, as the population gets older, they have more morbidity. 70 to 80 percent of people aging with HIV have at least one comorbidity older than HIV. Most of them have two, three, or four, and. Uh, also the type of comorbidity that these people have changed. This is a little bit of a crowded slide, so I wanted you to concentrate on the first uh, block here, which shows uh, uh, as a cause of death in people um, in developing, so not in developing country, in high income country, and you can see that the majority of the cause of death are blue or green or red, which means cardiovascular, cancer, or liver-associated disease, which are more typical from the general population. So people don't die anymore of AIDS-defining event, or not so much anymore, at least in our uh, high-income countries, but they now have ma more and more disease that uh, mirror the one of the general population. Also a lot of diabetes and obesity and metabolic syndrome. And not only they have all of this disease, but in general, in average, they also get this disease earlier, around eight to 10 years earlier than the general population. This is a study where you can see that one line, the um, continuous line shows people with HIV and the dotted line is the general population. And you can see that for most of the diseases, uh, the HIV population gets them a little bit earlier. Not only non-AIDS event, but also overall geriatric syndromes uh, are more prevalent in people with HIV right now. For example, hearing impairment or incontinence, these are all stuff that people might not talk about, or depression or cognitive impairment, but they are there and they are important to consider because they actually impair life of people with HIV similarly to the general population. But we are not used so we were not used to see them so much because people at the beginning of the epidemics were uh, dying earlier and now they live long and so they do develop all these kind of geriatric syndromes. And this contribute to disability. In fact, almost 20% of people with HIV have at least one uh, impairment that uh, impairs uh, the activity of daily living. As simple as housekeeping difficulty, transportation difficulty, sh hard time shopping or doing their laundry. So basically, you, when, treater, when you treat older people with HIV, it's always good to ask very basic question about how they are doing in their daily living. Similarly, how I, you will do with the general population again, but just keep in mind that this might be happening earlier in this particular population. Talking about medical costs, and this is particular from California. I got my these slides from my colleague Miley Curry's. Uh, and uh, in average, in California, one uh, 
person with HIV costs about $47,000 a year. Most of them is medication cost, but you can see how the cost proportionally and linearly increase with every extra comorbidity. And when somebody has like seven or eight comorbidity, the costs skyrocket. So it's not only necessary, so it's the most important factor of course is the quality of life of the patient, but even from a cost point of view, uh, it is important to consider and to treat and to ask about comorbidities. So why, why is this? Why do people with HIV have this unsuccessful aging, we call it? Well, it's multifactorial. On one point, uh, the, there is some genetic factor and the lifestyle. We know that not all, but many people with HIV might have uh, more risk factor. They smoke more, they take drugs, uh, uh, they have uh, more sexual risk factor, all of them can uh, eventually um, bring to inflammation. For example, we talked about drugs yesterday. Many drugs uh, have been associated with inflammation, especially stimulants. Uh, opioid is not that clear. There are both, also there are some studies showing that some opioid are associated with inflammation and some study that show that opioid are actually immunodepressive, but uh, interestingly, cannabis, and I want to mention it since I put it in the question, cannabis is associated with reduced inflammation. Cannabis has other problems, uh, so the community always gets excited when I say it because they feel now they can smoke and <laughs> that's okay. Also, cannabis has other problems, of course, but for the inflammation, there is strong evidence that it can uh, decrease inflammation. So another concern that we had uh, for inflammation was art, art toxicity, as a toxicity of antiretroviral therapy, and we will talk about it. Uh, of course, now with the newer drugs, this is less and less of concern. And then persistent inflammation that is uh, multifactorial, and we will talk about it more in detail because that's exactly what my talk is about. But all of these uh, uh, factors uh, can bring to unsuccessful aging. Talking about uh, antiretroviral therapy, so early in the days, uh, there was a lot of concern about uh, toxicity of antiretroviral therapy, and so maybe some of you remember uh, about more than 10 years ago, they designed a study that was called SMART, where people were interrupted antiretroviral therapy to try to limit the exposure time when the CD4 were high enough, and then they were interrupting antiretroviral therapy, and then they were starting again when the CD4 dropped, I think, below 200. And so, and this trial had to be stopped because they noticed that in the arm that was interrupting antiretroviral therapy, they had a disproportionately high uh, incidence of cardiovascular events. So basically that was the one proof that the virus is worse than antiretroviral therapy. And since then, no, now we tend not to stop antiretroviral therapy unless uh, very special cases that uh, uh, we heard about. So in fact, uh, and uh, I think that uh, Dr. Sag showed this picture already a couple of times. You can see that uh, the level of inflammation, and here we measure inflammation with activated CD8 T cell, like CD38, CD HLA, DR, these are a marker of activation. And you can see how people that are 
untreated uh, that are in red uh, have very high level of activation. And then when we put people on antiretroviral therapy, which are the green one, activation significantly decreases. But even in people that are treated and are undetectable, this, they, the level of activation never goes down to the, to the level of uh, the blue group, which is the HIV negative. And this is true even when you start antiretroviral therapy super early. There is some activation always persists. So we have an important clue for nature. I got these slides from Peter Hunt. I always really like to show it. There are two types of monkey that both get infected with HIV but have very different outcome with SIV, sorry. So Suti Mangabi and Tresus macaque, when they get infected, one of them, so both of them have high level of viral replication, but Sutimangabi, they do not develop AIDS and they have a normal lifespan, lifespan <laughs> while Rhesus macaque, they develop AIDS and they and die very fast. And what is the difference between two? Sutimangabi do not have basically any immune activation, while Rhesus macaque has massive immune activation. And this is one of the clues that we got to think that maybe immune activation is not good. So why is it not good? First of all, inflammation can cause fibrosis in lymph tissue. Again, we talked about this, uh, Dr. Sack talked about this early on, like uh, T cells uh, uh, replicate and expand in lymph tissue and then they spill over into blood. So if there is a big fibrosis in lymph tissue, this is associated with less CD4 T cells, with poor CD4 T cell recovery and an impaired immune, immune function. So inflammation is bad because it, it, it is associated with less CD4 T cells. In fact, uh, if you look at here, and again, uh, here you can see on the y-axis, uh, um, actually on the x, axis uh, activated CD8 T cells and on the uh, Y axis uh, the level of CD4 T cells and you can see that uh, there is a correlation between higher CD8, higher activation and lower CD4 T cells. Activation is associated with all sorts of uh, non-AIDS event. These are data from the SMART trial when you can see that interleukin-6 and D-dimers, both of them are marker of activation or coagulation, which is associated as a coagulation and activation go hand by hand often. And you can see that they are very strongly associated with uh, cardiovascular events. In fact, uh, interleukin-6 is one of the strongest predictor of cardiovascular events. And I, I didn't want to go too much into detail of every disease, but there is extensive literature linking inflammation and all sorts of non-AIDS events from cancer, thromboembolism, diabetes, COPD, pneumonia, cognitive dysfunction, depression, frailty, and many more. But inflammation has been universally linked to non-AIDS event. So inflammation is not good. A little bit of inflammation is good, but this inflammation that is persistent in the setting of HIV is not good. So what, fa what are the factors that are associated with inflammation? Well, me and many others have spent uh, our life and academic life trying to figure out what are the main factors. I really like this figure from Steve Dix uh, in his Lancet review where he summarizes some of them. You can see like microbial translocation, co-infection, viral and bacterial co-infection and co-pathogens, uh, 
of course, art toxicity, as I talked before, HIV production and replication, and loss of regulatory T cells. These are some of the reasons why people have inflammation. I wanted to go in detail with some of them. First of all, let's talk about low-level viremia. So there is a big controversy in the field about uh, if there is yes or no ongoing viremia. There are some people that say, and Dr. Sag said it very nicely, when you are on antiretroviral therapy, replication stops completely. There are also people that believe that maybe there are some sanctuary in the, in the body, like in the gut or in some lymph node where antiretroviral therapy might not uh, penetrate uh, deep into each tissue where there is a little bit of viral replication. But we know, again, and he mentioned it before, that even if there is no replication, there are spills of virus from the reservoir that are detectable. And in fact, uh, in this study, they saw that 80 so when using a very sensitive way to measure HIV, 80% of people had detectable viremia as slow as three copies per milliliter. This is not something that you can measure with your normal assay, assay in the clinic, but this is something that we can measure in the lab by using very sensitive methods. And you, you know, there is evidence that this very low level of viremia, even if it's not clinically relevant uh, in the sense that it doesn't bother the patient or it doesn't cause viral failure, it might still be associated with uh, some sort of inflammation. Also, when, when we go and we measure HIV cell-associated RNA in various tissues, and that is something that we do in San Diego, we are famous in San Diego for our for studying the reservoir in various tissues. That's what, something that we, we do all the time. We can find cell-associated RNA in, in various tissues. For example, here, this is a study from uh, 2010 that I was part of. We found relatively high level of cellular HIV RNA in duodenum and ileum. So you can imagine that if there is cell-associated RNA, there is also some sort of trigger to the immune system. Microbial translocation. You have probably all heard about microbial translocation. This means that when HIV first enters the body and it goes in the gut and it wipes out the CD4 T cells, there is an opportunity from bacteria to translocate through the wall of the gut and to enter the bloodstream. And these bacteria are highly immunogenic and they can cause inflammation. And we know that people with HIV have increased microbial translocation. Here you can see in orange, this is somebody with HIV and no art. And uh, here we measured uh, LPS, which is uh, a marker of microbial translocation. It's part of the wall of gram-negative bacteria. And you can see that it's higher in people with HIV non on art, and then you, it decreases again when people are set on art. Uh, this is the green group, but again, it's not going back to the level of HIV negatives. So people with HIV have some sort of continuous spillover from bacteria from the gut into the bloodstream that can maintain inflammation. And here is a, is a work from one of our uh, researchers in our group from uh, actually already f six years ago, it seems yesterday, where he showed that level of lactobacillus, which is a, a good bacterium in the, in the, in the gut, uh, is uh, negatively associated with uh, uh, activation of CD8 and CD4 T cells. Uh, this means that having a lot of lactobacillus is good 
and uh, unfortunately in people with HIV often the lactobacillus get wiped out and they get colonized with other type of bacteria. And then uh, one of my favorite, uh, uh, for those of you that know me, they know that I have been spending a lot of my time uh, studying the uh, correlation between CMV and HIV. Co-infection, of course, that's very intuitive. If somebody has a lot of co-infection, not only viral co-infection, but also STDs or bacterial co-infection, over time their uh, inflammation goes up. And one of the, m the major trigger that we think might be associated with increased inflammation is cytomegalovirus. And these are um, uh, data from one of our paper where they show that people that have HIV and CMV have significantly higher CD8 T cells and level of uh, inflammatory marker TNF receptor 2 compared to people with HIV and no CMV and compared to people without HIV without HIV. So CMV seems to be the smoking gun of inflammation. And uh, Peter Hunt, uh, like in 2011, he did one short trial that uh, with valgancyclovir where he treated 30 people with, uh, with, with HIV and cytomegalovirus with valgancyclovir for uh, um, eight weeks. And then again, he monitored them for four weeks after valgancyclovir stop, and as you can see, there was a significant decrease uh, in uh, both soluble TNF uh, receptor 2 and soluble CD163, which are two important markers of inflammation. And uh, this is exciting because basically this decline is bigger than any other, as the effect sites of this decline is bigger than any other intervention that has ever been done in uh, people with HIV. So on the uh, on the wave of this uh, cool data, we have been uh, designing two studies at the ACTG that I'm chair of. One is 5355 and 5383, where we will treat people with HIV with latermovir or with a CMV, anti-CMV vaccine to try to see if by treating CMV or by uh, suppressing CMV with a vaccine, we can reduce inflammation. But this is, I'm very excited about this. Okay, what can we do to reduce inflammation? As a most foremost and the most important thing that you can do right now, there is really not much that you can do, but that one thing that you can do is start antiretroviral therapy. I think we talked about it multiple times, start early. Uh, again, here you can see that uh, uh, level of CD8 T cell activation, again, CD38, HLA-DR, these are marker of activation of CD8. Um, you can see how it goes down uh, when you treat, and it goes down even more if you treat people early or acute compared to chronic. So as earlier you start uh, antiretroviral therapy, as better it is for the inflammation. Again, it doesn't go back exactly to where it was before, but you can avoid inflammation by starting antiretroviral therapy early. So what holds promise uh, right now are statins. Uh, this is the Saturn trial. This was a smaller trial that has been published in 2014, where they showed that people that were on, on statin actually had a decrease in activation compared to people that were not on, study, on statin. And this brought uh, the ACTG to design, uh, and maybe you heard about it, the reprieve study. This is a huge trial with over 7,500 people that were that did not have an indication for a statin, but they uh, were placed on 
pita vastatin, so I had to write it down, or placebo, to see if there is a positive effect of a statin on, of, on cardiovascular disease in people that have no indication for a study otherwise. So I'm excited. Uh, I think they finished enrollment and we will hear. I don't think we heard about reprieve results yet, but we will soon. And I'm excited about it. That's a huge study, huge achievement. And then, of course, uh, diet and exercise. Uh, that's <laughs> really true for all of us. Um, high fat and carbohydrate meal are associated with inflammation. I always remember at Croy, I think it was a Croy a couple of years ago, there was a study where people were force feeding monkey with uh, McDonald's every day and, and then measuring inflammation compared to a, a group that were normally fed and, you c and they could see that in the first McDonald's group they were, inflammation was going up over time. So basically, there, are, there have been study, randomized study, unfortunately not in the setting of HIV, but there have been randomized studies showing that exercise and diet decrease inflammation. These studies are very hard to do for multiple reasons, of course, because uh, it's hard to randomize people. People lose interest after a while when you tell them that they have to e exercise. It's hard to see how much they exercise. Now with Fitbits and so, uh, these studies are easier to do. But uh, I think that there is clear evidence that exercise and losing weight is good, both for people with and without HIV. Okay, so... We are already at the summary, and I still have six minutes left, so I probably talked faster than <laughs> I wanted. But uh, my summary is, despite optimal antiretroviral therapy, HIV is associated with shorter life expectancy. Not as we are getting there, but it's still a little bit shorter, and increase in several age-associated morbidities. Immune activation and inflammation persists despite antiretroviral therapy and might as a strong predictor of this morbidity. Earlier initiation of antiretroviral therapy decreases persistent immune activation. Statin, diet, and exercise might hold promise and need to be studied. Targeted intervention directed to the underlying cause of inflammation might hold promise, and here I am referring in particular to my 5355-5383 anti-CMV studies. But there are other studies out there to decrease inflammation. The ACTG does them all the time. I'm just particularly excited about mine. And then uh, recommendation for patients. So, I am an MD, but I didn't practice for a long time. I put this together with help of uh, some of my um, clinical uh, practicing colleagues. And basically, you follow, you, so people have to follow up with their medical provider regularly, following the guideline for checking and controlling vascular risk factor like cholesterol, blood pressure, and diabetes. I would say this is important for everyone, but this is particularly important for people with HIV. And unfortunately, there have been studies that show that people with HIV sometimes, maybe because they already have a lot of pills to take and they already have so many other problems, uh, that the provider tend not to pay attention and that a lot of people that should be on aspirin, a lot of people that should be on anti, uh, on, um, uh, on pills against the high blood pressure are actually not. So just be very careful and uh, enforce uh, the guidelines. 
stop smoking, that's important again, that's not only for people with HIV, but even more important because of course smoking, taking drugs, uh, this uh, have a, has a cumulative effect with the virus. Exercise regularly, eat healthful diet, uh, maintain healthy weight, get regular cancer screening, assess polypharmacy, safety at home, quality of life. This is a take home message from uh, you know, with the population getting older and having more comorbidity to actively ask uh, for an uh, impairment and if they need help and if they are able to do their grocery and housekeeping and uh, how and urine incontinence, like all these sort of uh, geriatric symptoms that people might not bring up, uh, but to actively ask for it. And then avoid and treat co-infection like virus hepatitis, syphilis, tuberculosis, be on, on the top of their vaccination schedule. They need all the vaccines. Uh, uh, there is no, as, as much as I love CMV, until our trial are not done, there is no recommendation to treat CMV. And then I wanted to thank Peter Hunt and Miley Caris because they shared their slide with me and they consulted with me as I was getting ready for the talk. And then many other people uh, from uh, my team, uh, in particular David Smith, who has been my mentor for many years. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to take questions. And I am almost three minutes early. So thank you. There are microphones, of course, for people to come up and ask <coughs> questions. Uh, well, uh, people are going to the mic microphones. Let's uh, take one of these here. Would you recommend statins for all HIV-positive patients? Well, not yet until we don't hear from the reprieve study. Like, if they have an indication, yes, of course. Uh, but uh, as soon as we hear from the reprieve study, that will change the guidelines. Well, let, let, let me ask a modification of that yeah. question. Do you, do you think it affects kind of how you interpret the, the uh, risk calculator that we use sometimes to, to determine statins? Does the fact somebody have HIV kind of push you one way or another? Or do you still think it's too early? Well, if I was in doubt, and again, I need to make very clear that I'm not a practicing physician. I, as I am an MD, but I didn't see patients for the last 10 years. So. I don't treat people myself, but so I might make stuff up. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I would say if I am in doubt, like if I am in a gray zone, the fact that somebody has HIV will definitely bring me to consider it more than if somebody didn't have. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, by the way, practicing physicians make things up as well. So. <laughs> uh, we'll go to the microphone. Good morning. Thank you for an illustrative and very provocative uh, talk. In trying to take care of patients, I'm awed about the extent of inflammation. Is there any correlation, for example, in the translocation of these uh, inflammatory agents across the gut and in the CMV co-infection in regards to where their CMV is? Is it where the, and is it related to where their CMV levels are now, uh, their CD4 levels are now, or with how extensively they were injured when they were first diagnosed. Like for example, if somebody starts at a CD4 50, is that at much higher risk for these inflammatory issues than somebody that you started treating at 500? Any idea how that may help us in trying to figure out who to be a little more aggressive with? 
So let me repeat the question to make sure that I understand it. You, you're asking if somebody at the time of diagnosis had a very low CD4 T like a low nadir CD4 T cells, uh, if that uh, has any correlation with their microbial translocation of presence of CMV? Yes. Is that uh, those inflammatory markers, are they more related to how deficient they were when they were with their immune system when they were diagnosed, or does it really have to do with where they are now? Well, my answer is both. I, we know that having a low CD4 T cells uh, and being diagnosed later in the infection is not good for inflammation, and it's not, and it, so being diagnosed in a chronic infection, the course is, so let me rephrase it. By, by being diagnosed early during infection is better. So, and having a high nadir CD4 T cell is better. And we know that even if people re, re, uh, reach good CD4 T cell, they still have a worse uh, overall diagnosis, even if they had a low CD4. So I will say both are important, both where you start and where you get. Does it, that, is this what you were asking? Okay. Dr. Sack. Yeah. What nice uh, discussion. One thing we were talking about a lot in the last two days is uh, what about a functional cure where you basically are creating an elite controller where they control things much like you showed in the inflammation slides, but it's not quite down to negative. Can you, from an immunologic perspective, uh, can you give us an opinion on uh, what you think that might do in the long term uh, with ongoing inflammation? That's a good question. <laughs> so basically he was asking if uh, having a functional cure, this means that if we can, uh, if we ever manage to strengthen then the immune system to somebody to a point that they have to go out of antiretroviral therapy f for a long time and still remain without the virus, if that might be a bad thing for the inflammation, and I absolutely agree, unless we find a way to completely suppress the virus, and this means not having the spillover, uh, it is very possible that that virus that will spill over will keep activating the immune system, and maybe people who will get a functional cure will have more non-AIDS event, and that's something that we will have to carefully monitor if we ever get to the point of a non non as well, of a functional cure, which right now at the moment still doesn't exist yet. It's, it's nice when you make things up that agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, next question. Would you recommend antiretroviral therapy for elite controllers to prevent aging? So we had an extensive discussion yesterday, right, about antiretroviral therapy for elite controller, and I personally, if I was going to be a prescribing physician, I think I would, if I was an elite controller, I would want antiretroviral therapy, because there is, uh, there is evidence that uh, ongoing replication is associated with inflammation and aging. So I will say yes, but it is a personal choice. As we saw yesterday, not everybody agreed. Great, thank you. Uh, in the study showing high-fat diet increased inflammation, did the type of fat matter? I don't know about that. They did not, um, they did not go into the data, and I don't know. Sorry. All right. There's a couple questions uh, uh, with this theme. Could the current medications being used in rheumatology to lower inflammation be an option? That's a very good question, and there, are, there have been uh, uh, studies within the ACTG using all sorts of anti-cancer or anti, uh, 
uh, rheumatoid arthritis. For example, there was one with methotrexate, uh, with sirolimus, uh, with rooks. Uh, I, now I don't remember rooks something. Do you know rooks? Mm. Well, there, these are all uh, anti-cancer and anti-rheumatoid arthritis uh, medication and they have been tested and none of them were uh, successful in reducing inflammation, at, at least not to a significant level. And uh, honestly, they are also, the, they, they involve some toxicity, so we don't really want to use them unless they really have a big effect. But CMV holds prom promise. So if you see the data about CMV, the decline in inflammation was larger than any other intervention that has been done at the ACTG. If we can, as if that, if what Peter Hand showed holds true with the next trial. Next question, should we follow or pay attention to CD8 counts as a measure of persistent inflammation? And there's a little editorial comment I've historically ignored. <laughs> You know, like, I, I am a fan of CD8 T-cells. I think there is a, a big uh, um, uh, literature, like there are studies showing that the CD4-CD8 ratio is actually imp an important predictor of mortality and morbidity. And uh, I, I would, the problem is if somebody is treated on, anti uh, on uh, antiretroviral therapy and it is optimally treated that CD8 T-cells is high, what do we do? There's not much that we can do. But we know that people with a low CD4, CD8 ratio have uh, a worse disease outcome even when CD4 T cells are in the normal range. So yes, CD8 T cells are important and I will keep an eye on them. Even if in, re in reality there's not much that we can do to lower CD4 T CD8 T cells at that point, at this point. That's another, actually, another of the end point of the CMV study if we can lower CD8 T cells. A question about your trials for uh, a CMV uh, treatment. Are these uh, a subset of people that have active or symptomatic uh, CMV, or is this for all HIV-positive people? No, they are both. Uh, they are for, for people that have HIV and they are co-infected with CMV but have no CMV disease because we know that people with HIV have uh, asymptomatic CMV replication in almost everyone. Like if you take seminal plasma or oral mucosa of people with HIV and CMV, you can find CMV replication in almost everybody. So because uh, CMV really has this amazing uh, talent in evading the immune system and keep bubbling and replicating and stimulating the immune system, and uh, so basically the inclusion criteria for both trials will be to have HIV and CMV, no CMV disease and being uh, uh, suppressed on antiretroviral therapy. And then for the Latermovir trial, we also look at people older than 40 because we would like to try and enrich for people that have already some sort of inflammation. While for the vaccine trial, we look at younger folks because we want to make sure that they have a good immune response to the vaccine. Any role of uh, probiotics to help HIV inflammation? That's a good question, and I think that the ACTG has, so not only the ACTG, but so many trials have been done with probiotics, and so far none has shown uh, a positive effect. I do have to say that it's extremely difficult to, um, to do a, 
uh, to design a trial with probiotics before people take probiotics all the time only by eating yogurt. And so there are so many confounding factors, that, but th there is no clear evidence for any probiotics that really will change uh, microbial translocation. There are some, some uh, and the trials are mostly small. Some of them show some signals, but then they were not reproducible. So I will say so far, no. Great. Uh, here's an interesting question. They're all interesting, of course. Um, should we be moving away from the general term inflammation and talk more about specific patterns of inflammation in terms of their significance in HIV infection? Well, this is why we, as we are studying, we don't know yet which are the main pathway that, are, uh, that we need to target. Uh, we have tried to target specific pathway, for example, anti-interleukin B1, anti-interleukin 2, anti-interleukin 6, but there is not one single pathway that right now stood up as particularly important. So I think that right now we still call inflammation because uh, in reality it's the full tree of inflammation and we don't know yet which. Peter Hunt always talks about inflammation as a tree where you have a common, uh, the, you have the roots and then you have the tree. I can't remember exactly. I need to go back and see how he was looking at it. But basically right now it's a full tree with all the roots and we don't know exactly which root is more important than other. Do we know if the rate of malignancy is higher in people who are CMV positive? I don't think that's settled. There are definitively studies that show that CMV might be associated with some sort of malignancy, but to the best of my knowledge, that's not settled yet. So I will say no. So a couple questions about the role of aspirin therapy in HIV as an anti-inflammatory approach. Any specific thoughts about that? Yes, they did a trial at the ACTG with aspirin to reduce inflammation and it was negative. So it did not reduce inflammation and that was a big disappointment because everybody would have bet that it would help, but it didn't. So a lot of negative trials, unfortunately, they had from an inflammation point of view. Here's a question about are there statins to, to be avoided? And, and of course, some of the statins have pharmacokinetic interactions with some of our medications. But are there, maybe re rephrase that, are, do different statins have different uh, anti-inflammatory properties? I'm sure they have. And there, there, I know that, as far as I know, there are potent statin and less potent statin. And the potent statins of Clure has have also more anti-inflammatory properties. But I wouldn't now, I wouldn't know which specific. I know that they use pitavastatin for a reprieve study, so I can imagine that they thought that was the most anti-inflammatory. Have you any uh, information on the use of turmeric for decreasing inflammation? Turmeric? What is it? Cumin? Anyone clarified turmeric? I know no. some of my... Oh! Turmeric? Okay. Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> I obviously don't know. I can't even pronounce it, so... <laughs> Can you comment about the reduction in inflammation in uninfected individuals for example, using uh, valgan for CMV. Uh, have there been any studies of 
kind of uh, maybe outside of HIV infection, I guess, is one way to, to interpret that. Well, we do know that, if, that people with CMV and no HIV have also, like some, the immune system is different, uh, they have more inflammation, and th there have been peop tri uh, trials treating people with, a with CMV and no HIV with valgancyclovir. They, they were not looking specifically at inflammation because that's not so much the concern, but more on uh, the shift of the population because we know that people with CMV have more differentially differentiated T cells and they were trying to push the population more towards naive. But you know what? I'm not sure. I don't want to make stuff up. I, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> this one, I, I don't want. I, I'm not sure. I'm sure they did this trial, but right now I, I can't remember exactly the outcome and what they were looking at. Okay, question at the mic. Um, not to back up on the Tamaric question, but um, any comments regarding um, the role of omega-3s specifically after the reductic study came out and the 25% reduction in cardiovascular events based on omega-3 at prescription level, not talking about over-the-counter where it increases the cholesterol. Just wondering. Did you understand the question? Can you repeat the question? Okay, can you repeat the question? Uh, Was this about omega-3 fatty acids? Oh, okay. Yes. Omega-3 omega fatty acids. And, you know, taking it away from the over-the-counter products, which do okay. increase cholesterol. We know that. But. Okay. I, I don't think this have, has been studied. To the best of my knowledge, I don't know if it's has been studied to HIV or if there is any data supporting it. All right, uh, we've reached the end of our question and answer period. Thank you very much for a great talk.